I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 16th, 2020. Coming up, last week I spoke with Professor David Werner about his research findings showing that general anesthetic exposure during childhood can set the stage for later alcohol dependency. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. With many localities reopening after lockdown, lots of us are anxious about a second wave of coronavirus. The best strategy to prevent further viral infection is vaccination. I'll describe some of the most promising vaccine candidates as well as obstacles leading to their production and distribution. How does vaccination work? Basically, a vaccine exposes you, and therefore your immune system, to a whole virus or some part of one that supposedly can't make you sick. Then the immune system goes about its usual business of generating proteins called antibodies that target and destroy the virus. It also develops cells that will do the same thing. Although both these immune responses to the coronavirus have not yet been well documented in people, they've been shown to occur in monkeys. And previous studies from the first coronavirus, that's called SARS-CoV-1, in 2003, showed that long-lasting antibodies developed to a part of the virus called the spike protein. That's the protein the virus uses to attach to and invade a cell. This evidence from the last coronavirus is part of the reason the spike protein is an important part of the design of many of the proposed vaccines. So what are the most promising vaccines? There are a lot. Almost 200 have been proposed at this time. Vaccines fall into a few classes. First, there's the inactivated virus. You might think of this as a dead one. Second, there's the live attenuated virus. This is a virus that's weakened in some way so that it can't make you sick because it's not an entire whole virus. Third, just one single viral protein. And fourth, gene delivery systems. This last method is gaining popularity because it delivers only the DNA or RNA message for a specific viral protein. By using the genetic material, our cells manufacture the viral protein and it lasts longer in the body, generating a stronger immune response. DNA and RNA-based vaccines can be generated quickly because the full viral gene sequence is known. This would allow a rapid pathway into clinical trials, but no vaccine of this type has ever been licensed for widespread use, so there's some uncertainty as to its eventual usage. Using just a single viral protein, such as the spike protein, entails a longer manufacturing time, but there is a lot of commercial experience with these vaccines, including licensed vaccines for hepatitis B, human papillomavirus, and influenza. Here's a sampling of what's out there now. A company called Novavax uses a stable form of the spike protein in its vaccine. This is now in early clinical trials. In animal tests, high levels of antibodies, which were able to inactivate the virus in test tubes, developed after a single immunization. AstraZeneca developed a vaccine using another virus as a delivery vehicle for the coronavirus spike protein. After vaccination, the spike protein is produced in the human body, priming the immune system to attack the virus if 
later affection incurs. This too is in early clinical trials. A similar vaccine was developed in China and is probably the furthest along in testing. Phase one trials, which look at safety in human volunteers and efficacy assessed in blood tests, which look for antibodies, were completed early in the spring. The researchers reported that neutralizing antibodies reached high levels by day 14 and peaked 28 days after vaccination, while the immune cell response peaked at day 14 after vaccination. This vaccine is now in phase two trials, which look at the ability of the vaccine to prevent disease in people. The Moderna vaccine may be the most well-popularized of the bunch. Preliminary reports of its efficacy drove the stock market almost eight points higher last month. The design of this vaccine is novel, using a fatty wrapping around the RNA message for a stable form of the spike protein. Patients in phase two trials received their first vaccine treatment at the end of May. This drug may need to be delivered in two doses, however, a month apart. Then there are some novel delivery systems like the microneedle array. This looks like a little patch with a few hundred tiny needles embedded in it. Stick the patch on your skin and the spike protein vaccine oozes in. Nasal sprays are being developed too. In addition to not sticking you, these deliveries may actually generate a stronger immune response. So now you know some of the options, what are the holdups? Well, first, the pathway to drug approval is long and costly. The approval process in the U.S., which is similar to that in other developed countries, consists of three separate rounds of clinical trials. The first is primarily to ensure safety. In the case of a vaccine, you don't want the treatment to give you the disease. In some past instances, a vaccine actually worsened the disease, either initially or during a subsequent outbreak. The second and third stage clinical trials are designed to ensure the drug works in a large number of people. The high number of asymptomatic cases of COVID-19 means an even larger sample population for clinical trials will be needed. Further, efficacy in young, healthy adults doesn't predict similar effectiveness among older adults or susceptible individuals who may have major risk factors for COVID-19. Then there are situations, such as the pandemic, during which some of these strictures can be lessened, but no one wants to put out a vaccine that won't work or will cause problems. Additionally, the global need for vaccine and the wide geographic diversity of the pandemic will require unprecedented scale-ups and distribution efforts. The full development pathway for an effective vaccine for SARS-CoV-2 will require that industry, government, and academia collaborate in unprecedented ways. The National Institutes of Health has initiated a partnership with other U.S. and EU government agencies, as well as representatives from universities, NGOs, and biopharmaceutical companies. This forum allows for discussions and consensus on vaccine trial designs, rapid data sharing, and close collaborations between the public and private sectors to rapidly and efficiently conduct vaccine efficacy studies. The ability to manufacture hundreds of millions to billions of doses of vaccine will require the vaccine manufacturing capacity of the entire world. At this time, there are no such cooperative efforts. Though this conclusion sounds discouraging, given the roadblocks I've outlined previously, the next six months could see both an effective vaccine developed as well as a scaled-up manufacturing process.
Last week, I spoke with Professor David Werner from the State University at New York in Binghamton. His research explores molecular targets within the brain, such as receptors and intracellular pathways that may play a role in alcohol action. His work is helping to clarify why individuals respond differently or why some individuals succumb to alcoholism. Welcome to the show, David Werner. It's a pleasure to have you. Last week, you published a really intriguing article in which you described the effects of general anesthetics on a response to alcohol later in life. And you used rats. So can you start off by telling us why rats are a good model system for studying alcohol? Sure. So rats are an excellent model for, for looking at alcohol um, because they, the behaviors that they will elicit um, are able to are able to translate to the human condition remarkably well, and the genetics uh, for the rats and the the brain circuitry are also remarkably similar. So, it makes it much easier to be able to do um, these studies uh, that have greater translational relevance, and especially using a model that we have in rats, where they're going to have a much shorter time span. And especially when we get to looking at developmental studies like adolescence, for instance, it's not really um, morally ethical to be giving alcohol to, to teenagers um, uh, and, and humans, whereas we can actually do this more readily in rats to be able to get a much better idea what is the consequences of, of developmental exposure. Right, exactly. Despite the fact that adolescents are doing it to themselves, we can't really put them in a lab and do it. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I love this term adolescence in rats. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So the adolescence periods in rats is, again, this is something that's it's very evolutionarily conserved. The adolescence, a lot of times people tend to think of this as being synonymous with puberty, but puberty is really just only one developmental stage of, of adolescence where the, the sex organs are really going to be uh, coming into more maturation. But adolescence itself really encompasses um, more of the, of the organism interacting with the environment. Uh, from an from a evolutionary conserved idea, it's thought that adolescents really experience this, this uh, tendency to wanting to go out and have more risk-related behaviors as they are starting to try and, and leave the nest, if you will. Um, and they start exploring, exploring their, their behavior. And this is something, as I was saying, it's evolutionary concern because it helps with the propagation of species. And humans, uh, by no means, are, are different than that. So you have this risky behavior. You also have this balance with a certain affective behaviors on top of that. But it's, it's this exploratory nature that helps create this, this more likelihood to, and to engage in these risky type of of um, behavioral responses and part and parcel with that drug taking is within that within that risky behavior yeah i think that's a great point and one that many of our listeners may not really have given much thought to that it's vitally important for mammals to leave the nest as you said and get out and so some of these behaviors that we don't condone in teens they actually have some 
adaptive significance. And maybe you could talk just briefly about some of that background in rats because there's a huge literature in adolescent rats showing that they do things much like teenage humans do. Sure, so the adolescent rats, I mean, they will, they will tend to, to and so they'll engage in this, this risky behavior. They will, they will tend to be much more exploratory. They will tend to put themselves um, in environments that will, um, could potentially be, be a little bit more dangerous um, uh, to them. But a lot of this is, is, is acting, so for no pun intended, acting really without thinking about this. They will, they will tend to, they, this is more something that's under the neurobiological endpoint. So much of the, the work that we see across species is that the, there are many subregions within the brain that are, that are more mature, they're more developed than areas that allow us to really be able to think about our actions, have, think about what the consequences of those actions might be, that these are more cerebral, more cortical type of, of, of regions. These are developing much more, much later in, in an organism's uh, um, lifespan towards the, the late adolescence. In fact, if you translate this to humans, um, the, the frontal part of the brain is, is going to continue to, to develop and refine its maturation processes um, well into the, into the 20s. And in some cases, depending on the studies, uh, particularly within males over females, it tends to be a little bit longer. There's been some documentation that it goes even into the 30s. Yeah, it's so, remarkable how long it takes our brains to mature. And so it's, it's kind of scary from that perspective when we think about adolescents experimenting with substances like drugs and alcohol, that they could be doing some permanent, I don't know if I should say damage, but alteration to those developing parts of their brains. Yes, and it's, it's, I think that's more, that, that really puts it more on the, on the, uh, the, the wording on exactly what is occurring, because it's not like we're going to see these these major malformations occurring like you would see with like an infarct from a stroke um, right away. These are more um, microscopic changes. These are more of these alterations that are really going to be occurring in how one, one nerve cell is going to be talking to another nerve cell within the brain and how you're going to have more of these abnormal type of connections, if you will. Right. So you did a really clever thing. You gave your adolescent rats a general anesthetic and then you looked at their behavior down the line. So tell us about that experiment. What prompted you to do it? What was your hypothesis? And how did you design the experiment? Well, we've been, we've been working with adolescent development for, for quite some time. And the, the one thing that really prompted this was it was, it was really a marriage of, of much of my, my research interests over the years, one of them being within alcohol and the other being within within anesthesia. I, I actually did a lot of my, my uh, doctoral training um, um, in an anesthetic department, anesthesia department. And so the, uh, one of the, the interesting things that I've been continuing to, to follow in our literature is actually um, uh, work coming from one of the more prominent scientists actually down at, at the UC um, School of Medicine um, in Denver. Um, they've been showing that the the studies with over in the last number of years that the studies with um, exposure uh, during um, early childhood 
um, infancy periods or can have um, greater ramifications on organisms later, later in life. Um, and what's apparent about the anesthetic exposure is, is that even though we tend to think of it being remarkably safe, a lot like alcohol, we still don't know exactly how anesthetics uh, really, really um, um, have their, def their definitive molecular mechanism. Um, and so, but we do know that they are fairly, fairly similar to alcohol. One of the things that we noticed within um, this study is when we were, we were doing adolescence is that some of the behaviors, when we were having animals that undergone surgery, that their behaviors, they were still eliciting somewhat normal behaviors, but the, the baseline responses weren't necessarily the same as what we would have in, an, in a non-surgerized uh, non animal. And so we did a, a, a retrospective meta-analysis on this and, and saw that there was some potential differences, but we can't necessarily say that there was anything really going on until we did the actual empirical study with the, with the right control groups within it. And so this is how we went ahead and, and, and prompted um, us to carry out these studies. And this is actually over um, two uh, recent manuscripts over the, the past year. Um, so the, the, the first one that we actually put out is that we just looked at the consequences of just the anesthetic exposure itself. And a lot of these, these basal behaviors I was talking about adolescence, one of the things that we noted was that just the anesthetic itself caused them to be even a little bit more impulsive. And so now if you can actually take an, an organism that's already impulsive, and even if you increase this just slightly, you can see how this can further increase risky behavior. But we also noted that in certain cases, it also um, increased other affective behaviors. So they could be more impulsive, but they could also have greater anxiety. And it also looked like they had greater, greater cognitive, um, a little greater cognitive impairment on top of that. And so kind of if you have the analogy of more thinking about something without, more doing something without really thinking about the actions of it. Um, we also noted that it changed their, 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 their social interaction qualities as well. So a lot of this is really shaping up to what we see being really um, parsimonious with, with alcohol um, exposures during that adolescent period. And so this is what prompted the more recent study, which is now where we looked at what's the consequences of this anesthetic exposure during an adolescent period um, on alcohol-related behavior. And this is now where we really see these effects being further amplified, a much akin to what we see um, in an adolescent organism where that has been continually exposed, continually binging alcohol during that time frame. And I just want to point out to our listeners who, by now knowing me, know that I like to um, inform them as to the process of science. And this is a really great example. I love what you did, how you took observations from the past and you put them together and developed a new hypothesis and used that to inform the experiment that you're about to tell us about. Right, so, and it- Yeah, go and ahead. So, and so simply what we did in, in these set of experiments is, is that we just took the, took the rats and we exposed them to a very short period of, of an anesthetic, um, isoflurane for about 40 minutes. Um, and this is really not different than an explosion than you would see for someone, say, um, having their, their wisdom teeth pulled out or some other fairly quick 
um, outpatient procedure. Uh, and so not, not anything uh, necessarily long or intensive. Um, and then we go ahead and we just let the animals recover, recover normally. And, and then we go ahead and do the behavioral tasks later on. And let's just see how they actually interact with alcohol. And remarkably, what we see in the alcohol responses, uh, there, was two, there was two points, one being during the adolescence and one further into adulthood. During adolescence, what we noted is that these animals were less sensitive to the, the negative consequences, the aversive consequences of alcohol. So they, they were less sedated. They were also less averse um, uh, to, to alcohol's um, uh, taste consequences with it. Um, and they also drank more. And when we think about these, these negative consequences, um, there's uh, a wealth of literature that's come out in the last decade or so when we try to think about whether or not an organism has susceptibility to alcohol use disorders. Um, if it's gonna be, do they really love alcohol? Um, is that why they really drink more or do they just hate it less than another organism? And it's more that the latter is, is, is showing it to be to be uh, a greater propensity is that these negative consequences, these are an innate, these are innate cues that tell us uh, when we've had enough of something, when we're, when we're tired of it, that we need to be able to, 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 to stop drinking, that this is, this is potentially damaging. Adolescents just naturally don't have, uh, they have less sensitivity to these, these negative affects. And this is, 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 um, um, associated with this increased consumption. Now, during an adolescent period where we already taken an organism where they already have less of these aversive cues, we've made the aversive cues even substantially less. This is going to further escalate that drinking in an already, an already vulnerable population. The second end is, is the question that we're trying to ask in this study is, is what is um, what is the length of these effects? Do they wash out as the organism gets older or are they going to continue to persist? And it's actually the latter is what we found with this. And many of these behavioral responses do in fact continue to, to persist. Yeah, that's a really um, intriguing point. And I do want to emphasize for the listeners that all of those aversive consequences that you were mentioning, those are really protective. So things like getting drowsy, nodding off after just a drink or two, feeling kind of crappy the next day, those protect you from drinking more. And like you said, adolescents have less of them. And as we've all seen with maybe ourselves and maybe our adolescent children, they can kind of force themselves through that more easily than we as adults can. Yes, and that, that's exactly right. And um, this is this is really where a lot of our, our current work is going is, is really trying to fundamentally understand the, the, the underlying uh, neural correlates um, associated with, the, with that averse responding or that, that propensity to, to have that greater susceptibility for alcohol use disorders. Yeah, that'll be so interesting to find out what that neural architecture is. But in the meantime, do you have any thoughts on how those effects of general anesthetics could be minimized or reversed in people that have had them as children or, or young teenagers? That, that's an excellent question. And, uh, you know, I, we still don't really have, have an answer to that. 
Um, but when you look at, at uh, some of the analysis, retrospective analysis that's been done in people, um, there, there appears to be, in some cases, a lot of the environments that help, help individuals overcome some of these. And so this is one of the things that we're going to continue to, to, to look into. Um, so, so when you look at, when you look at um, an anesthetic exposure in general, there's really, um, there's really two periods where, where individuals are gonna be most vulnerable. And I should really preface this uh, for the audience is that general anesthetics, um, uh, and any anesthesiologist will tell you this, they are remarkably uh, safe compounds and, and we, we need these. Um, to really be able to to carry out um, procedures uh, within medicine, um, but the the periods where where an individual appears to be more labile tends to be where they are in in this developmental stages um, in in uh, in uh, childhood and now what we're starting to see potentially with adolescence, um, but also um, later on in um, uh, late adulthood. Um, this is, there's documentation where people can get what's called post-operative um, cognitive decline. Um, the, their, the protective factors is really is potentially how, how well um, individuals may be engaged within their environment, potentially how can they um, keep themselves um, exercising, if you will, um, from from a mental aspect and also from a, from a, a physical aspect, how are they helping to keep themselves engaged? And when we're looking at the the past the past data, um, individuals who who tend to um, have some of these quote unquote protective factors from their environment uh, may be able to help minimize minimize some of the repercussions um, uh, from an anesthetic exposure. Uh, this is something that we're going to continue to to look at from this because obviously that there are there are some people who are who are who are going to show this to a greater extent and there are going to be some that are are not going to show this. And both of those factors that you mentioned, both um, cognitive and physical exercise, are good mm -hmm. for so many of the things that ail us, and people should be encouraged to do them um, for a variety of reasons. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there because we're out of time. Thank you so much for talking, David, and good luck with continuing your research. I hope to hear more from you in terms of what you find out about the underlying neurobiology. Thank you very much. That was David Werner, researcher at the State University of New York in Binghamton. He studies pathways in the brain underlying individual differences in sensitivity to alcohol and susceptibility to alcoholism. I'll put a link to his research website on the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. I produced this week's show, which was engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Nora Jones. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to the feature interview, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? 
call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.